You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Aid to Ukraine becomes mired in the domestic politics of its allies. Hungary's Prime Minister swaps a horse for an electric car and the curious demise of the winter pop ballad. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Aliona Hlivko and Lou Lukens will discuss the day's big stories and we will have live music from the very great Bob Mould, late of Huskadoo and Sugar. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Aliona Livko, former regional Ukrainian MP, now managing director of the Henry Jackson Society, a foreign policy think tank that advocates for liberal democracy, the rule of law and the market economy. And by Lou Lukens, a senior partner with Signum Global Advisors and former US diplomat. Hello to you both. Good evening. Um, Aliona, you, like at least one recent daily guest in recent memory, have been in Qatar at their thing that they have there. The thing meaning Doha Forum. That's the one. That's the thing. Yes, it was a very interesting gathering. Uh, Of course, I was going there under the impression from previous year where uh, President Zelensky was a keynote speaker Mm -hmm. and there was a Ukrainian speaker on every single panel, whereas this year I found myself listening to Lavrov and the foreign minister of Iran. And the general mood was quite dire and almost anti-Western in its essence. So this is a big pivot in the space of one year, and this is a theme we will be returning to shortly. But is that anti-Westernism, do you think, is it a reflection on the fact that people are just losing interest in Ukraine's struggle? Or is this has this been, I, I guess, ignited by the, the resumption of war between Israel and Hamas? Um, Well, I was fortunate enough to also meet with the Ukrainian ambassador in Mm -hmm. Doha, and we discussed some of the areas where the state of Qatar is actually still supporting Ukraine in various humanitarian efforts, including returning Ukrainian children back home from Russian captivity. But I think it is the general division that is now being sowed amongst uh, various nations. And I think the multilateralism that I think will be the sign of the new world order. It is being opposed by multipolarity, and that's something that Russia is strongly pushing for, um, still kind of inflaming the global south, saying to them that the West has betrayed you yet again. You can see that in this Israel-Gaza war. Um, so the moods were generally very I would say many panels were quite manipulative by those some keynote speakers, which is a shame to see, but I hope we will get through this rough patch. I'm always trying to be optimistic. And I know Lavrov wasn't there in person, stricken by an arguably convenient bout of COVID. But Mm. nevertheless, how strange is it as a Ukrainian to be sitting there listening to Sergei Lavrov uh, bluster his way through another exposition of Russia's inane justifications? Oh, I was perplexed about this because I knew that Ukrainian diplomats were ready to walk out the room uh, if he were there. And then our common friend, Yossi, who's the regular uh, Mm -hmm. guest on the Monocle Daily Show, he said to me, look, you're an analyst, you need to be there, you need to hear what he's got to say. So I was just getting my shoes prepared to be thrown (laughs) at the stage, um, similar to the famous um, Iraqi incident. But he wasn't there, uh, which was a bit disappointing, but I was quite happy that I got to keep my shoes because they were quite nice. Um, 
It was surreal to hear how twisted it is. I must say the interviewer uh, from the major media outlet uh, was not harsh enough on him. And I've talked to other of his colleagues, journalists, who said that, yes, that interview was not conducted to a standard. Unfortunately. Uh, Lou, you have recently been sampling uh, London's theatre land. I have. So I went to a play called um, Ulster American uh, okay. here in London, and it, it stars Woody Harrelson um, as an American star um, and two other actors. I mean, it's a very it's a short it's an hour and a half long, no intermission, three people on stage. Um, very provocative, um, and there are gasps from the audience at times, um, but lots of laughter also, and it's a, some just incredible acting. I mean, good gasps, nobody storming out or indeed throwing shoes or anything. No, but sort of shocked gasps, I would say. Like, the, the dialogue is very provocative. What's it, what's it briefly actually about? It, it is about an American star who's been um, picked to, to star in a, in a play about Northern Ireland. And the, the three characters are the American star, so it's Woody Harrelson, the director, Andy Serkis, and the writer, Louisa um, uh, Harland. And, and it's sort of the interaction between the three of them. It's fascinating. So they're attempting to explain Northern Ireland to an American Yes, without great success. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they wouldn't be the first uh, or indeed the last. Uh, we will start with Ukraine, now embarked on its second winter since Russia launched its full-scale assault on the country in February 2022. Since then, most of Europe and the wider Western world has provided considerable diplomatic, financial and material support to Ukraine's defence. But Ukraine has always understood that attention can dwindle as inexorably as ammunition. And so it appears to be proven a major aid bill is stalled in the U.S. Congress, while a significant tranche of additional EU aid is being blocked by Hungary, a country which should not require reminders of Russia's revanchist inclinations. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke at a press conference earlier. Here is some of what he had to say when he was asked about his responses to slightly less helpful world leaders. In Argentina, I told Torban, I said, Victor, can you tell me one reason why, why you are not supporting us in EU? It was before the decision. He couldn't tell me. And uh, the second why, why, tell me one more reason why we can't organize of official meeting between us. And he also couldn't find the, the answer. But we, I think we found a solution that very diplomatic one, that our sides will work on it. President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking earlier today. Um, Aliona, the, the hold-up in aid, is it already beginning to make a difference in Ukraine? Uh, it's beginning to spread a little bit of a panic, to be honest. Um, it still can't be really felt immediately in the economy or on the battlefield, even though the number of shells is decreasing tremendously every day. Um, but for the next year, it's actually detrimental because both EU package and the US package are responsible for covering social payments uh, for Ukrainian budget. So effectively, I think Ukrainian economy can last until March um, with all the backing, especially that we need for the IMF funding that has just been secured in the US as well. But then, um, I mean, the Ukrainian economy might just collapse. March is not a long time away, Lou. If we look at the United States in particular, 
Uh, this is being delayed by the, the headbanger wing of the Republican Congressional Caucus, which wants to tie funding to Ukraine to border security. Um, should push comes to shove, do we assume they are serious? Would they really block this money to Ukraine? They, they are serious in their dislike of additional assistance to Ukraine, and they're also not very happy about some of the border proposals being being thrown around. Um but they don't have a sufficient number to actually block further assistance to Ukraine. So I think it has dragged on and it's happening much slower than certainly than the White House would like. Um, but I think, you know, they're working on the border piece of this this week. It's not going to get done before the holidays. But I think in January they'll come back and they will have a package that includes changes to our immigration law as well as assistance to Ukraine and to Israel and to Taiwan, three very important allies of ours. And I, I think they'll get that done, maybe wrapped up with government funding, which, by the way, should have been done three months ago and still hasn't been done yet. Just to follow that up, Lou, um it is a particular wing of the Republican Party which is trying to make a thing of this. Perhaps they believe it is to their electoral advantage as well with an election year looming. But why is even among that cohort the self-interest argument not sticking? I mean, even Senator Mitch McConnell said as recently as October, and to remind everybody, he's very much a Republican senator, he said, no Americans are getting killed in Ukraine. We're rebuilding our industrial base. The Ukrainians are destroying the army of one of our biggest rivals. I have a hard time finding anything wrong with that. Now, that is as as cynical and self-interested and as real politic a view as you could possibly take, but it's not entirely incorrect from America's perspective, is it? It's not incorrect, uh, but the headbangers, many of them are taking their lead from former President Donald Trump, who is, as we know, the front runner in the race mm-hmm. for uh, the Republican nomination next year. He's been very vocal and no more assistance for Ukraine. We have to spend our money. If we're going to spend it, spend it at home. And there's a large chunk of the Republican Party, especially in the House of Representatives, that has taken their cue from him. Um, Alyona, we did hear briefly uh, a few minutes ago from President Zelensky. He was talking about that uh, much speculated upon public conversation he had with Viktor Orban at uh, Javier Malay's inauguration in Buenos Aires. Um, From Ukraine's point of view, we've spent a bit of time talking about this on the daily uh, over the last few days, but when Ukraine or a Ukrainian, such as, for example, yourself, uh, looks at the stance Hungary has taken. What what sense are you able to make of it? I'm extremely perplexed uh, by the government's stance, to be honest. Um, I have spoken to many Hungarians, including some of the ones who live here in London, um, who have expressed their utmost support for Ukraine. They have helped me source even some equipment for my brother on the front line. They have helped me to get it across the border uh, through Hungary. And yet they keep apologizing for whatever their government is doing, saying that, you know, this is just something we need to, to stick to. Unfortunately, he keeps getting the majority of votes. So it must be something within the society that just tips the scale within their favor. Just finally, Aliona, before we move off this, uh, looking ahead to 2024, which it can only be hoped will be the last year uh, that Ukraine has to put itself through this, but we are approaching two years now of this stage of, of Russia's onslaught against Ukraine. How optimistic are you and your fellow Ukrainians in the main um finding yourselves able to stay, as you've just mentioned, and as regular listeners uh, will be aware, this is not academic for you. Obviously, your family are in in Ukraine, your brother is serving in Ukraine's military. Is optimism still as easy to come by as it was two years ago? Um, Not at all. 
Um, and I'll I'll share with you that even in August when I was in Ukraine last, um, I was getting inspired by the stories that my brother was telling me from his time in the front line, from their plans uh, with his friends uh, to fight off uh, Russians for as long as it takes. Um, this last Sunday, I had a long one and a half hour chat with him, mm -hmm. just convincing him that everything's going to be okay in the new year, that there's loads of weapons coming from the West, that we're going to push through the American funding, the EU funding, that the jets are coming, that more HIMARS are coming, uh, that the West is not going to give up, private-public partnerships, defense companies are going in, you name it. And I spend all of my energy and resources just trying to convince him that there still is hope because there's nothing more detrimental to a soldier going onto the front line with little hope for survival for himself, his comrades or the country. Well, I'm sure we all wish Ukraine a much better 2024 than its 2023 and indeed 2022 were. Uh, but we will move along for the moment. And it is difficult on a number of fronts to scrape together much sympathy for the Chinese Communist Party. But it is just about possible to commiserate vis-a-vis -vis the quality of certain of their regional allies. The CCP appears to have fallen out with the dismal military junta at large in Myanmar. Chinese patients having worn thin regarding the online scam operations which the Myanmarese generals have allowed to proliferate on their territory. Many of their victims are Chinese nationals, as are many of their operators. Um, Lou, we were discussing a short while ago uh, the cynical real politic approach to such things. Is it arguable to say that China and Myanmar kind of deserve each other? <laughs> well, look, this is an incredible story, really. And this situation with these huge scam farms, you know, staff by forced labor, basically, all along the border there. Yes, both governments have turned a blind eye to this, and both governments, frankly, have probably profited from this. And, you know, it just got to the point where I think, uh, I don't know if it was a territorial dispute, or there were some Chinese, apparently Chinese undercover police in one of the camps that were that they all tried to escape and were shot by Myanmar guards. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening there. Um, but yes, they do deserve each other. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that said, Lou, is the Myanmarese regime actually useful to China? Or at least where does China see um, the upside in its, well, near neighbor being governed by such a, a, a ghastly bunch? Well, I think China had pretty good relations with the previous government there. And I think China's interest is really sort of geopolitical. And they, um, they I think, have, have been planning and I think are still working on a direct route from China through Myanmar to the Indian Ocean. And, you know, w with China, it all comes down to location and building infrastructure and having access to natural resources. And I think that's probably the main reason for their affinity with the government in Myanmar. Is there a, a broader lesson to be drawn from this, perhaps, Aliona, that it's it's a, a commonplace of, well, all superpowers, not just China, the United States uh, has a long and somewhat unsavory history of, of doing business with obviously unpleasant, corrupt uh, and crooked regimes. It, it almost always comes back to bite you, doesn't it? I'm surprised you're using the word almost. <laughs> I think it always comes back to buy you. That uh, legal nihilism and the all-allowedness and the gray zone, obviously authoritarian regimes thrive on that. That's the mm. best place to make money and all the income you could possibly make without having to account for it. But inevitably, when there are no rules in this gray area, you're going to get some of that repercussion too.
I mean, there is another aspect to uh, the Myanmar story, Lou, which has a wider application, and it is something we touched on in the first story, which is the the wavering and variable attention paid to conflicts around the world. Obviously, at the moment, uh, as no Ukrainian needs telling, all the world's attention has been consumed, not unreasonably, by what is occurring in Gaza. But the war in Myanmar has not gone away, and it's been a pretty huge deal. The UN report this week that one third of the population require humanitarian aid. There is a huge joint offensive underway by three rebel militias, which has captured seven cities um, in the last few weeks. And this is not garnering anybody a lot of headlines. No, look, I mean, the the, the globe is scattered with, with regional conflicts and, and civil wars and, I mean, all across Africa, across South Asia. Um, I mean, this is, you know, even in, you know, in Haiti's falling apart, just right, you know, just south of the United States. Um, these conflicts are happening all over the world. And I think that the globe, the people just don't have the attention to focus on all of them. So, yes, it's sort of the shiny object. Ukraine was the shiny object and then Gaza happened and attention shifted to that. And, you know, the, 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 the I think people's capacity um, to sort of track and follow and be involved in multiple conflicts globally at once is very limited. And just finally on this one, um, Aliona, is it also arguable that however sympathetic or otherwise one might be to the Chinese Communist Party, this kind of you know disorder, this grey zone, as you put it, occurring in Myanmar also makes them look bad. It makes them look like they have no influence and that they're not in charge and they can't run their own neighbourhood. They, they are supposed to have brokered, this is China, a ceasefire uh, in Myanmar this week. Um, but after that ceasefire was decreed, if I've got the chronology right, um, the, the capital of Tuangpeng province, uh, Namshan, was captured by the Tang National Liberation Army. So th- there are non-state militias taking entire towns in what is supposed to be China's neighbourhood. Well, I guess if one were to know a little bit about history, it wouldn't come as a surprise because actually authoritarian regimes are really not good at sustaining peace and stability. If you look at any of those regimes, it's it's something that's constantly just waiting to blow up. If you look at Russia and the recent Wagner mutiny, isn't that the same? If you look at all the other occupied territories uh, that they have pursued for the last 30 years, they all eventually come back. And, and any conflict in this world, authoritarian regimes are just inefficient. <laughs> uh, there is no structure. There is no governance. It's ruled by one person, one strongman. So it, inevitably things fall through the crack, especially in the age of cyber warfare, informational warfare, things are much more fluid these days and they're very difficult to control. Well, on a related topic, the answer to the question of what one gets the person who has everything, or at least the person who has complete control of NATO's second biggest military and a palace with 1,000 rooms, appears to have been answered. A horse. This, possibly in recognition of the stable relationship enjoyed by the two countries, come on, I worked on that all afternoon, was the gift presented to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban during Erdogan's visit to Budapest. Erdogan's offering to his host was an electric car built by Turkish manufacturer Tog. Um, Lou, we did want to use this as a springboard for the discussion of the theory and practice of diplomatic gift giving. Uh, You must have been involved in a fair amount of this. Were, Were you ever witness to any notably calamitous such? Uh, 
Well, uh, we were just discussing before we started mm -hmm. um, the famous reset button that Hillary Clinton gave uh, Sergei Lavrov, I think it was, mm -hmm. back in, um, in her first trip to Moscow as Secretary of State. I was on that trip um, with her. Um, I was... Uh, I was not involved in creating the gift. I think the gift... The intent, everyone says that the, now. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'll tell you afterwards who was involved. Um, the, the intentions of the gift were excellent, but I think the execution obviously left something to be desired in the translation of the word from English into Russian. Um, but that said, it is, there's a whole office in the State Department and in the White House that deals with nothing but these diplomatic gifts, and it, there is a very comp there's a lot of thought that goes into them. More more thought for some leaders than others, obviously. Uh, depends if the president or the secretary of state has a personal connection to that person. Uh, but there is a it is a complicated and potentially treacherous uh, field of endeavor. Were you ever involved in the the choosing or delivery of one that didn't land quite as it might have been hoped? No. But my favorite story of ones that didn't <laughs> Again, land very well. Everyone says that now. <laughs> was, uh, which I was not involved in at all was was when President Obama came to London and gave the Prime Minister Gordon Brown a whole set of American movies on DVDs. And of course, mm. American DVDs don't work in the UK. Uh, the, 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 that one has passed into infamy because I think at the time, if I recall rightly, Gordon Brown gave Obama something extremely thoughtful. It was like it, a, yeah. a, a pen holder made from the same wood as the as the Resolute desk yes. in the. Exactly. Exactly. In the Oval Office, and Obama got Gordon Brown. It, it honestly looked like when the motorcade had been going to the airport in Washington. <laughs> they got at the gas station. <laughs> so he literally exactly. Oh my God, we've got to get Gordon something. America's best Western. And <laughs> <laughs> um, if we if we look at this example that we have seen between Orban and Erdogan, neither of whom I am sure are high on your list of, of current favourite national leaders or indeed human beings. Um, what do we make of the symbolism? Because I would have thought that somebody like Viktor Orban might bristle somewhat at an electric car, thinking it was a bit, you know, modern and, and woke. Well, and also Hungary is not known for its horses, right? It's not like Azerbaijan or anything prominent. That, it's, it's, that not, it's not be. what leaps to mind. Not, not quite, no. And then Turkey obviously tries to be at the forefront of all developments in Europe, hence the electric vehicle. I think the horse was meant to represent the, almost like the macho match mm. between the two, that they're so bigger and... and relentless in their, I don't know, what is it, pursuit against the institutionalist Europe and NATO. I don't know exactly what it was, which, but it was a little bit strange from Hungary. From Turkey, I can understand it. It's just standard self-promotion. Plus, there is an, a new electric cable going again from Azerbaijan through the Black Sea, Turkish territory to Hungary. And that's a big project that they're pursuing. But the horse, I'm not quite sure. To be honest with you, my favorite mm. diplomatic gift that I've heard of in the last couple of years, because I speak to many diplomats, was this quite awkward moment and with President Zelensky when he's exchanged gifts with Boris Johnson at their very first meeting. So Boris Johnson, of course, being Boris Johnson, brought his book to President <laughs> Zelensky um, in English. 
And strangely enough, Zelensky had exactly the same book for him, but in Ukrainian. So they've exchanged oh, two books by <laughs> Boris Johnson. I wonder if it makes any more sense in Ukrainian than it did in English. Not sure. <laughs> See, I, I, I thought the horse, uh, Lou, might be some sort of callback. I mean, as Aliona suggested, it's that it's that strong man symbol. And I thought maybe Orban was calling out or calling to some of those famous images of a bare-chested Vladimir Putin uh, on horseback. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't want to try to guess what was going on in Orban's mind. I mean, animals are are frequently a gift. I mean, you know, the famous panda diplomacy between the United States and, and America. So it's not unheard of to have a, an animal as a gift. Um, but who, who knows why in this case? I, I was once given a chicken by Cameroonian royalty. And, I mean, it's not really a diplomatic gift as such. I think he was he was just trying to be friendly. Was a it, live chicken. It was a live chicken. To be a in, pet in, or in a dinner. Rica, but I, I think it was anticipated that I would eat it. But um, if, if His Royal Highness the Fon of Binka is, is tuning in right now, I, I will confess that once I thought we'd driven a discreet distance away, uh, I gave the creature its freedom. Um, finally, on today's programme... In the United Kingdom in particular, this time of year has a soundtrack, i.e. the canon of Christmas and or winter ballads with which shoppers, diners and consumers of all media are mercilessly berated from about mid-October to Boxing Day. But all these songs are now quite old. The duumvirate of glam stompers Merry Christmas Everybody and I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day by Slade and Wizard respectively were both released 50 years ago. That's 5-0. Fairy tale of New York, written for the Pogues by the late Shane McGowan, is 36 years old. East 17's Stay Another Day, of which we just heard a snippet and which was recently resurrected by Georgia Smith, is a year away from 20. Um, All of us here at this table are are relatively new arrivals uh, to this country. Um, Aliona, what have you made of the the British tradition of the the Christmas pop hit? Do you find it still vaguely charming or do all these songs uh, annoy you unreasonably? I think for about two days I get really excited, but by the 20th time that I hear Mariah Carey on the radio somewhere and all I want for Christmas is you, I'm kind of done with it. Mm. Um, Lou, where are you on the Christmas ballad as a genre? Uh, look, I, I think it's charming. I don't listen to the radio, so I don't hear. I'm not bombarded with it all the time. But I like. I enjoy these songs, and I think it helps sets the mood for the season. But but then we come to the question of why there aren't any new ones, and I wonder if it is just that internet-enabled fracturing of the culture, Aliona. There's no common points of reference anymore. I mean. The Spice Girls had three consecutive Christmas number ones in the late 90s. uh, And I did look up the list of Christmas number ones. I basically could not tell you anything about a single thing that has been Christmas number one this century. The last five Christmas number ones in the UK have been novelty hits by an entity called Lad Baby. Are you aware of their work? I'm afraid not. Mm. I think I need to brush up my UK culture knowledge. I I did look into this a bit, and I'm here to tell you, you do not need to brush (laughs) up uh, on this aspect of your your culture knowledge. Um, Lou, are are there any in particular that that you'd like, that you look forward weirdly to hearing at this time of year? You know, honestly, I prefer the classics, the old sort of Christmas hits from the 40s and 50s, and the, the new stuff just, I mean... I don't mind it, but it doesn't really do anything for me. 
Is, is there a Ukrainian Christmas pop hit, Alyona, that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, Christmas pop hit. The biggest Christmas pop hit for Ukraine right now is The Carol of the Bells by Mikola Leontovich, mm-hmm. the very uh, famous Western hit now that was actually written by a Ukrainian composer. So we're extremely proud of it. And as you can see, I'm, I'm very happy I got the opportunity to mention it. But we are more um, traditional in that way. I think we listen more to Christmas carols. And that's what I actually prefer here too. I have loads of playlists, especially King's College, um, here from Cambridge singing all the Christmas carols. That's something that definitely puts me into Christmas mode. On that thought, Aliona Hlivko and Lou Lukens, thank you for joining us. But before everybody goes off to their Christmas carol playlists, Ukrainian or otherwise, we have live music to close today's show and live music at that from one of the most consequential rock musicians of recent decades. Bob Mould formed Huskadu in Minneapolis in the late 1970s. They imploded within the decade without accruing anything like the fame they merited. But Huskadu's combination of buzzsaw punk guitars and sweet pop melodies hit big with a coterie of musicians from America's Pacific Northwest. The most eventually famous of them, Nirvana, always acknowledged the influence. Bob Mould later formed the acclaimed group Sugar and assembled a substantial solo career. Bob visited Midori House on his recent solo electric tour. I began by reminding him that we'd met about 30 years ago when he was touring the US with Sugar and not at all keen back then to discuss Huskadoo's mighty legacy. In 1979, my first band, Husker Du, formed. Mm. And it was, a, uh, you know, in retrospect, a pretty important American underground band. Influenced a lot of people. The band broke up in January of 88. I spent a year on a farm in northern Minnesota writing what became the workbook album that mm-hmm. came out in 89. And a second solo record, Black Sheets of Rain. And then 1992 was the, you know, Sugar, Copper Blue, and then Beaster. When I left Husker Du, I really wanted to create my own identity. I mean, I was aware of what the band had done, and I felt like it was really important not to rest on those laurels. And I think I made the right choice because I've had a very, you know, I've been fortunate to have a very long career, which is still going and will continue as long as audiences allow me to get on a stage. So I think it all worked out well, but I was very, you know, I could remember not wanting to talk about the, that immediate past, and it was a complicated past, mm. you know. And it, and um, it does me. It would not have served me well to make light of any of the circumstances that led to the breakup. It would have done me no good to try to capitalize on the breakup. So I just wanted to move forward. I mean, I know that the memoir, uh, See a Little Light, was quite a while ago now, but was that a kind of catharsis? Did that put a lot of that stuff to bed? Yeah, it did. And it's funny because now the book is, what, 12 years old? Thereabouts, yes. Yeah, and even in the subsequent 12 years, you know, my views on things in the book have changed. There's moments in the book where... I was a little harsh towards certain people, and I regret that. But when I look back now and I think about some of the unkind things I might have slipped into a sentence here and there, that was how I was feeling about things at the time (laughs) when I wrote the book. So I take ownership of my bad form if there's any in there. But, uh, you know, it's it's an evolution how I look back on Husker Du. I think, you know, the past handful of years with Grant's passing and with... Uh, Grant Hart, the drummer from Husker Mm. Du, his passing, and Greg Norton had a health scare last year. You know, 
those years, you know, that, that tempers things. It puts it all in a different perspective. And, you know, I guess now I try to move forward with, uh, you know, way more gratitude for everything that's happened. And, you know, just, again, keep looking forward to, you know, more good things. I, I, I try to tell people I, I try to work hard and make a good living. And that's, you know, sort of keep my head down and do my thing. Okay. Well, your most recent solo album, Blue Hearts, was uh, very much uh, a record of its time, I mm. think. It was a, a fairly unmistakable response to Trumpism and everything that went with that. Are you, yes. are, you, are you kind of braced for having to make a follow-up to that? Well, I don't know if I'm going to focus entirely on the state of American politics this time around with another record. <laughs> You know, a lot has changed in in my life. A lot has changed with, uh, you know, with Trump being sent away for, you know, hopefully forever. That record, Blue Hearts, that was an interesting time for me. I had been part-time in Berlin, part-time in mm. San Francisco. I was appalled at the American politics. It was very reminiscent of what I went through in the 80s as a young gay man in America. Mm. You know, a government, you know, sort of a neo-fascist government telling me that I don't belong, evangelicals dictating, you know, policy on the country. And I just felt it was, you know, it was important for me to put myself back in that place, you know, I guess around October of 1983 when, when Husker du was making Zen Arcade and say, right, I had a bag of clothes. I had a portable lamp, and I had a guitar and a distortion box, and that's about it. So now in 2019 and 2020, my life is more comfortable, but what would I do if I only had those things? So that was the approach. Well, just finally then, you are going to do a song for us, and my inner 17-year-old Huskadoo fan is, is quietly beside himself at this point. Introduce it if you would. Yeah, I'll do my best here. It's a song called Makes No Sense At All. It was the first single off of a Huskadoo album titled Flip Your Wig, which came out in the fall of 1985. Yeah, regrettably, it came out on SST Records because... Uh, all of the major labels, and especially Warner mm. Brothers, really wanted that record. And I foolishly, for some sense of misplaced loyalty, thought that we should allow SST to put it out. Let me tell you, 40 years later, <laughs> I regret that decision entirely. One of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life. But... Let's not let it affect what I hope will be a good performance of a wonderful song that got put out by a lousy label. <laughs> Bob Mould, thank you. <laughs> Walking around with your head in the clouds, it makes no sense at all. So you're so short, but you're walking so tall, it makes no sense at all. You're yelling so loud It makes no sense at all Walking around with your head in the clouds It makes no sense at all It makes no difference at all Yeah, it makes no sense at all It makes no difference at all, yeah
was Bob Mould with Makes No Sense at All from Huskadoo's album Flip Your Wig. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Lou Lukens and Aljona Hlivko. And I see on the musical front we have pivoted from the sublime to the ridiculous. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Miller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Just a